going to tell them that they sinned. And you go back to Exodus chapter 3. And when God, I guess, gives his description, well, well, who sent me? In Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14, God says to Moses, he said, I am who I am. The, the definition is, I guess, the clearest it gets, clear as mud. It's as clear as you're going to be able to make it. God is who he is. There's no terms that really describe him to make it easy to understand. God has been. God will continue to be. God says, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me. You know, I think that gives us an idea of the character, the spirit being that we're talking about. God is the great I am. There's nothing you can do to describe him that would give him justice. You know, when you talk about when you talk about God and his power, when you talk about God and understanding God, all of it's going to be something far greater than we can truly fathom. Well, I think so. You know, that, that statement that was made to Moses, I am. And of course, in John chapter 8, Jesus, you remember, acknowledged that he is the I am. And the idea is that he is the eternal self-existent one. Mm -hmm. And the Lord is independent of the human family. In other words, he doesn't need anyone or anything to sustain him. And so as we try to, again, wrap our minds around the fact that, that this is the great I am, the eternal self-existent one. And Jesus, of course, bears, I think he bears the attributes of deity just as God the Father does. He would be the second member of the Godhead. But God is all-knowing. He is an eternal being. Uh, in Psalm 139, uh, you mentioned something about his power. Well, David in this psalm talks about the fact that we have been fearfully and wonderfully made. It was God who said in Genesis chapter 1, let there be light. God spoke the world into existence. God made something from nothing. We take materials that have already been here and we make something, but that's not how God operated in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And so, again, we're talking about a God who has unlimited power. Uh, his power demonstrated in the creation of the world, His power demonstrated in the creation of man, and then also His power demonstrated in sustaining the world. He upholds all things by the word of His power, as the Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. So again, we're talking about a being that has always been here, who will always be present. Matter of fact, in Revelation chapter 4, in the book of Revelation, we have what's typically referred to in chapter 4 as the throne room of Almighty God. And listen to what is said about God down in verse 11. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. And so, God the Father, He is eternal. He is all-knowing or omniscient. He is omnipotent or all-powerful. And then, Another aspect of God is that He is ever-present. He is omnipresent. Again, the psalmist deals with that in Psalm 139. Imagine a being that is everywhere. There's nowhere to escape the presence of Almighty God. In Psalm 139, in verse 7, David asks the question, Where can I go from your spirit? And then he says, Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, he said, You're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, 
Even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, Surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. Again, what David is saying is there is nowhere that we can go to escape the presence of God. If we went to heaven, He's there. If we descended down into the grave, again, God's there. If we took the wings of the morning and dwelt in the uttermost parts of the sea, God's there. And so another attribute of Almighty God, which really brings us back. There's a passage of Scripture. Look at Romans chapter 11 for a minute. I like Romans chapter 11 because it helps me to maybe put into perspective the being that we're discussing tonight. In Romans chapter 11, Paul says concerning God, and you know we talk about God being unequaled, incomparable, unparalleled. Well, in Romans chapter 11, listen to what Paul said, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been His counselor? Who has first given to Him, and it shall be repaid to Him? For of Him, through Him, to Him are all things, to whom be glory forever and ever. You go back to verse 33 again. The depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Really, it staggers the imagination. I mean, you try to begin a thorough investigation of the character of God, the nature of God, the attributes of God. And, I mean, it, it really... Uh, it, it really is difficult to put into human terminology the nature of God. You know, Mike, I think you're right. As you talk about His omnipresence, I just think about the, the reality of God knows those secrets. You know, there's a lot of things in the world where it's, Maybe I can get away with it because no one saw me do it. In Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 3, he talks about that all-seeing eye. The idea is that no matter where it takes place, no matter what takes place, God is there. That's part of God's omnipresence is God is going to see. You know, they say, be sure your sins will find you out. The reality is God knows. Uh, in Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 3, it says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. God sees it all. When we talk about our judgments, uh, or we talk about the judgment, you talk, talk about John chapter 12 and verse 48, those, those deeds are going to be, be there before Christ as, as He judges the world. And the reality is, whether your deeds are evil or whether your deeds are good, they're all going to be brought up. God is all-seeing. He's omnipresent. He understands. He recognizes. He knows what happened. You talk about His all-knowledge in Acts chapter 15 and verse 18. It says, Known to God from eternity are all His works. I can't remember what I ate for breakfast. <laughs> and it says, To God, He knows everything from the beginning, His works, and the reality is, within this point, is the fact that He knows your works. He knows what you did. He knows what I did. He knows whatever transpired, that's part of His knowledge. And it's, God knows it all from the beginning, from before creation. God knows, and that points to His, his knowledge. As you talk about the omniscience of God, you talk about the omnipresence of God, we see all these great things, and it brings us to 
to his, to his power. Yeah, you know, you, you talk about the fact that God has the ability to see and to know everything that we do. And you reminded me of the fact that there are some moral attributes of God. And that mm -hmm. is, God is a being of holiness, but He is a just God. Mm -hmm. And you know, one of the attributes, morally speaking, of God is He is no respecter of persons. That's what Paul said in Romans chapter 2. Uh, Peter would make that same case in Romans chapter, or rather in Acts chapter 10. Mm -hmm. And so God will do what's right. He has the ability to discern everything. And then His judgment, we can rest assured that whatever judgment comes down, it will be right. You remember Abraham. Mm -hmm. Abraham, of course, the father of the Hebrew nation. Abraham said in the long ago, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Now, you know, whether or not our judicial system executes justice is up in the air. Yeah, but when it comes to God's courtroom, God's going to do what's right. He's going to be fair. He's going to be impartial. And, and we can trust that His judgment will be just. And so, again, that's better than we can say about our judicial system. And so there are so many things to comprehend. I mentioned a moment ago the fact that God is a just God. He is a holy God. And, you know, in Exodus chapter 3, you mentioned a moment ago, Moses and God appearing to Moses and calling him to service. And you remember God told Moses in the long ago to remove his sandals. He said, for the ground whereon you stand is holy ground. Well, I don't think that the ground literally was holy where Moses was, but I think what God was saying to Moses is, look, you're in the presence of a holy God. And so when we come together to worship God, to understand we are in the presence of a holy God, and this holy God is worthy of our adoration and praise. And uh, again, to understand that we are His creation and that He is the Creator. Now, one of the aspects of God, by way of attributes, He's a being of love. His nature is that of love. John would say in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, God is love. And so, uh, God, is in, God is a being of love. And we talk about as His creation, we've been fearfully and wonderfully made. God loves us and God wants the best for us. And really, I think it leads us to another thought, Jared. When God made man, God knew in endowing man with the ability to make choices in life that man at some point in time would ultimately make the wrong choice, thereby bringing sin into the world, necessitating a Redeemer. So God had a plan in place before He ever framed the world. So when Adam and Eve transgressed His law in the Garden of Eden, what did He do? Immediately, He set forth that promised seed and He began unveiling that redemptive plan. Well, why did He do that? Well, because He's a being of love and because He loves us as His creation. We are the crown of His creation. Of everything God created, man is the only one made in His image and likeness. You said a minute ago to think that there's a part of us that will live forever. That's one of the ways we're like God, Jared. That's exactly right. It's the spiritual side. We think about the, the reality of, of our being as although, although we live in this physical body, just as God, we have the spirit within us which will continue to live on, which will continue to go on forever. You know, you mentioned the, the judgment of God as God is the righteous judge. He will, uh, you mentioned Abraham as he's, he's pleading 
on the behalf of the people, God, surely you don't want to destroy them. He said, I know you're a just God. You're a great God. You surely wouldn't do that. You think about how, how pure God's judgment is. It makes me think about Solomon. Solomon was very wise. You know, Solomon in all his wisdom, if you go back to 1 Kings chapter 3, he has the two women who come before him, the harlots, and, and they talk about the child. And Solomon, as you read down through... 1 Kings chapter 3, you see Solomon uses his wisdom as he says, hey, divide the, divide the baby in half, cut it up. Understanding the reality is that there's one who is the mother that recognizes, you're talking about my baby's life. Well, we've got the wisdom of Solomon, the wisest man in the land, and he still pales in comparison. Compare him to God, and God is this one that is inc incomparable. Um, as you think about the wisdom of God, it, it far exceeds anything that any man has ever done. You talk about the foolishness of God. It's still wiser than the wisdom of man, the wisest that man could be. God is still greater than him. And we looked at that just recently in our class on Tuesday morning in Romans. But the idea is God is the perfect judge, the righteous judge. I think about Romans chapter 11, verse 22, you, you alluded to earlier. Behold the goodness and the severity. You know, you're not an honest judge if you make rules and you don't stick to them. You're not an honest judge if you say, well, you go out and do that, and in this courtroom you're going to, you're going to pay the penalty and you let everybody off. But as you pointed out, what was the design within God? Well... There was a plan foreordained before the world ever came into existence. Before the God said, let there be light. Or before the Genesis 1-1 in the beginning. Before that, God had a plan. Now, as you mentioned, it wasn't executed. It didn't take place. It didn't start to uh, evidence itself amongst mankind until that sin in the garden. But the reality is, God knew before that what? Man was going to mess up. God knew before man messed up that there had to be a way of escape. And so ultimately, God had his plan in place. People have questioned before, well, did God make mistakes? No, God didn't mess up. God recognized from the beginning that mankind was going to need hope. Mankind was going to fall. And so therefore, he devised a plan how that the Christ would be the sacrifice which washed sins away. Well, that's right. And, you know, Jared, really it comes back to as we contemplate the character of God. You were alluding a moment ago to this divine plan that God had in place. And God is a holy God. He's a just God. As Paul alluded to in Romans chapter 11, behold the goodness and severity of God. One of the things that maybe we don't appreciate about God is the fact that He detests sin. And Maybe we don't see sin in all of its fullness. Mm. To understand that sin is the cause of all of the heartache and sorrow and suffering in this world. Well, God wasn't responsible for the sin of man, but rather mankind transgressed His law, bringing sin and death into the world, and God thereby stepped in, had a plan in place, so that we might be redeemed and enjoy the blessings. And, and you know, one, one of the things that stands out about God is His benevolence, His concern, His care for the human family. God is moved by the plight 
of the human family. And, and so to understand that behind this redemptive plan is tremendous concern for the well-being of, of those of us who belong uh, to His creation. You know, God is long-suffering, another attribute. The Bible, Peter said that God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, mm -hmm. but that all should come to repentance. And so, you know, if you ask the question, well, is God interested in me as a human being? Yes, God's interested in me. He's invested in me. He sent His Son to die for me. And ultimately, above all, He wants me to be saved. That's what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. And uh, God has pure motives. Mm -hmm. and, and behind that redemptive plan, yes, His love, His mercy, the Bible talks about His rich mercy in Ephesians 2, verse 4, but what about His grace? That grace was the catalyst, really, or the love was the catalyst to intercede on man's behalf. And then because of His grace, we have the opportunity to spend eternity with Him forevermore. You know, Mike, I think as you have pointed to or alluded to, the point is within God's plan for mankind is really just that of a picture of His love for us. When we talk about the, the moral attributes of God, the reality is He's evidenced His love for us in that of the giving of His Son. You think about John 3, 16 amongst uh, multiple other verses. The reality is God's plan is just the picture of God loved you. Uh, I think about Luke 19, 10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. He recognized a need in mankind and so therefore that need called for something that was greater than that of the blood of bulls and goats and the only thing that could that could satisfy was the blood of Christ. You know, as you talk about the problem being sin, you know, Isaiah chapter 59 verse 1 and 2, you see that the sins and iniquities have separated us from God. There, there becomes a a time when God can no longer have contact with an individual. Why? Because sin is in the camp. you got to get it out of you. You've got to mm -hmm. take it out of your life. And we talk about the picture of salvation. You talk about uh, giving your life to God. The idea is it's time for me to make this change where I'm putting sin in the past. Uh, we call it dead to sin. We're, we're giving up on that lifestyle because we recognize there's something better. So when Paul talked about it, he said, for me to live is Christ. The idea is, my life now is Jesus living in me and the world seeing that, rather than the world recognizing the sin that's in my life and the way that I live. Yeah, and you know, you triggered a thought in my mind. That is, step back and look again at the character of God. We talk about those intrinsic attributes, His moral attributes, and He's a being of love. You were alluding to His divine plan a moment ago. God didn't make us as robots, but rather God is a being of love. And what is it that God desires from His creation? Well, you know, we're not like some doll where you can pull a cord and, and, and let the cord go and the doll says, I love you, mm -hmm. but rather it comes from the heart. And you know, John said we love Him because He first loved us. When Jesus was asked about the great commandment of the law, you remember He said, okay, we're to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. What is it God wants from me as the crown of His creation? He wants my undivided loyalty, my submission to His will. He wants my love for He wants me to love Him above anything and everything. And 
again, that's difficult for us to grasp, but that's what He desires. And you know, we're talking about loving Him above any and everything. When Jesus was on earth, He talked about the fact that if we're going to be His disciples, then we've got to be willing to place Him above family ties, above any kind of earthly relationship, which again says something about the nature of God. You know, absolutely, you think about love in this picture of commandments. You think about the idea that God says, hey, don't do that, what's the point? I love you and I want to protect you. You think about John chapter 14 and verse 15, he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. The idea there is God's, God's commands, God's design for our life is literally care for us. We understand it when we think about a parent. Well, I told my son not to run across the street. You know, I told my child to look both ways. Don't touch that hot stove. Don't jump off that tall cliff. Don't climb too high on the ladder. You tell them all these commands and what's the purpose? I want to protect you. You know, when you look at Scripture, the reality is if you look at the extent of what sin does in your life, then we truly see God's design for caring for us. We talked about the justice and severity of God. I can't help but think about a father, as God gave design, if we love our children, what do we have to do? We have to chasten them. We have to, we have to discipline them. He says if you don't discipline them, the idea is that you don't love your children. The protection continues. God gave us a design. Look, don't do that because I'm trying to protect you. But the reality is if God is a just God and we choose not to obey, what? We're going to be cut off. You think about John chapter 15 and verse 14. He says, you are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. If you do what I say, be obedient. You want to be a friend of God and there's no one else that you should desire to be a friend to. But you've got a choice. Obey God and be his friend or choose Satan. That's the only two options. Well, you mentioned his law. And another aspect of God is his authority. Mm -hmm. you, you know, we live in a, we live in a nation that is governed by certain laws and every nation has certain laws that, that are in place. Well, God has divine law. And ultimately to understand that as our Creator, He has the right to impose His will and His laws upon us. And those laws are intended for our betterment, our blessing. Many times people view His laws as negative in nature. But as you said a moment ago, you know, as a parent, you know, when you put certain guidelines, laws in place in your home, you do that for the benefit of the child, not because you're trying to, you know, impede his or her growth or impair them in any way, but you're doing it because you want what's best for the child. Well, the Bible says, for example, in Daniel chapter 4, that God rules in the kingdoms of men. God is sovereign. You know, we have, we have laws, we have sovereign, for example, sovereign laws over the US, in, the, in the U.S. But God's laws are over every law. His laws trump all law. And so you think about in Psalm 99, verse 1, the psalmist said, The Lord reigns. God is over all. He is above all. And because He is the Creator and because He is God, He has the right to dictate how we live. Now, again... He leaves that choice up to us. You know, He's not going to force His will upon us, but He gives us the opportunity to choose to follow Him.
And God's not, you know, we sometimes, you know, we talk about dictators. God dictates His will toward us, but God gives us the opportunity to be submissive to His will, or we can rebel against His will. We can do our own thing. We'll do so at a heavy price. But those laws that are in place are in place to protect us. You remember in Revelation chapter 1, John talked about how the Lord Jesus is the ruler over the kings of the earth. Well, Jesus, like God the Father, is sovereign. And so to understand the authority of God, and one of the things that we need to understand about this book that we call the Bible, nowhere in Scripture has God ever given man the latitude to impose His will on God's will. You know, we can't add to, we can't take from. What God wants is to us be, for us to be respectful of His will. You know, as you talk about His authority, I can't help but think about Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3 and verse 17, we says, And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. We talk about the, the police force. They say, open in the name of the law. They say, well, well, what authority do you have to tell me to open my door? Well, in the name of the law. I'm coming uh, on behalf of the law. He says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of, by the authority of God. Well, how do we know that? You got to open your Bibles. You got to open the scripture. You got to study from it. And within scripture, we're going to we're going to see God's design. You talk about the maker, God being our creator. Does that not give him the right? Does that not give him the authority to say, "Look, you need to do this." Well, absolutely. You know, we think about man right now. You know, we've got all these crazy inventions in the world today. You know, we've got cell phones we get to look at. We've got cars that take us places you've got televisions that you turn on and you push different channels and it, it goes right where you say well the reality is though that phone only works because the maker created it the car only works because someone helped to build it okay go back to it that car might not like getting dirty but what's the reality I'm driving this machine Within God's design, he has the authority. He says, you obey me. He said, here are the rules. Now, we have free will, different than all those other machines. So can we go out and choose to do wrong? Absolutely. But understand, expect to suffer the consequences. You know, I think about John chapter 13, where we, we see that the, the teacher, the servant, is not above his master. What's the reality? Well... The relationship that we serve, we've got a master. Now, we have choice of what we're going to do, but the reality is the master is still in charge. And if God's not your master, then you can choose anything you want to do. But understand very clearly, the justice of God, the severity of God will come into play and you will suffer the consequences. In the world today, we've got law. Don't go rob a bank, but if you choose to... The consequences will come back to haunt you. So sure. as, we talk about, as we talk about God, He has every reason or every reason for us to obey His will because He's the maker of it. He's the maker of us. As the Creator, I see no reason to question. You know, another, I guess, maybe aspect of God, because He is God, then He is worthy of our worship mm. and adoration. For example, I mentioned a moment ago in Revelation chapter 4. And you remember in Revelation chapter 4, the 
creatures that were before the throne, the Bible says they didn't rest day nor night, and they said, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then verse 9, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things. By Your will they exist and were created. This verse really takes me back in mind to the book of Psalms in Psalm 95. You remember when the psalmist said in the long ago, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. You were mentioning a moment ago something about God being our Creator. And because He is God, Jared, then He is worthy of our worship, adoration. We've been talking about service. You were talking about you know, our love for Him and because we love Him, we obey His commands, and we, see, we seek, we strive to live for Him. But another dimension of living for God is giving Him the worship that He is rightfully due. And I think at the onset of our study tonight, we talked about God being a spirit being. For example, in John 4, verse 24, Jesus said, God is spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so when we talk about worship today, sadly, Jared, a lot of times people look at worship from maybe a selfish vantage point. You know, what can I get out of it? Or, you know, I didn't get anything out of worship. And I understand there's some byproducts to our worship. But really, worship means acts of reverence paid to deity. In other words, we're, we are coming to worship to give, not necessarily to get. Mm -hmm. And so how is it that we can maybe have the right perspective when it comes to worshiping God? Well, as we consider worshiping God, the reality is, as you mentioned, look, we need to understand that God is about worship. Mm -hmm. It's not about us. Well, how do, we, how do we put that into practice? Well, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, may be exactly what God wants them to be. And that's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. But the idea is within worship, where are we going to go if we're going to find out what God wants from me in worship? You know, as we talk about singing, we get this idea, well, I just don't like the way it sounds. Well, you can possibly choose a different song later. You could possibly speed the song up you could possibly slow the song down you could sing louder at different parts there's certain things that you can do but you don't want to change the worship of God in it you look at Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19 it says speaking to yourselves notice what's the deal speaking well what what does the speaking well there's only one part of me that I recognize that does speaking speaking to yourselves or sorry sorry as you look that is that is Ephesians 5 19 I was thinking I was getting on Colossians 3.16. I confuse them a lot. Speaking yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Might have swapped them. Um, but the idea is it comes from within. Now there are certain things that we can choose there. Um, we can choose whether or not we stand in a circle and sing. We can choose which direction we face when we sing. Uh, you know, but within it, the idea is where did the singing come from? Well, it came from man. And what's the reality? This is something I have to offer 
to God. Now, it says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Now, there is something that would be wrong if we chose to do it without, without joy. You know, if it's not a, a joyful thing, you know, if we're not focused on God, well, it wouldn't be a joyful noise to the Lord. But if we sing reverently, if we sing where God is our audience and we recognize we're singing to God, we're giving Him praises that He desires, then it would be the worship that He asked for. God is a spirit. They that worship Him worship Him in spirit and in truth. I believe that really points to they worship Him according to the New Testament. Yeah, you know, we talk about spectators. And I think sometimes when we come together, we have this idea that in the pew we're the spectators, that we're the audience. But really, biblically speaking, God is the audience. And we're the ones who are giving God, we're, our, our worship is directed to Him. Now, as you mentioned a moment ago, our singing is beneficial to one another. Mm -hmm. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We sing and make melody in the heart and we sing and teach one another. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, well, Paul said it in Colossians chapter 3, he said, sing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So we're directing that worship to God and we're doing it in, His, in, in the way that He has directed, I guess I should say. Yeah, and the idea is we want to do that in everything that we do. Um, as you consider worship, look, when we pray, we want to consider how, how Christ taught to pray. When we, when we sing songs, we want to sing songs according to Scripture. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we want to recognize what was God's design for it. Well, what were the emblems that were used? What was the, what was the timing of it. When did it when did they partake? You know, it doesn't say necessarily it was in the morning, it doesn't say necessarily it was in the evening, but what does it tell us? It tells us it was on the first day of the week. Mm -hmm. uh, we can recognize that through God's design, the early church came together on the first day of the week, and in part of that was partaking of the Lord's Supper. In order to do it today, well, we want to make sure that we follow that same pattern. And within everything that we do, we want to have that authority that comes from God, which means I want a God said. I want a I want a verse to go along with it. I want I want context that shows I'm doing what the early church did. If I'm doing what they did, what do I know? I know I'm doing what God wanted. That's right. Jared, I know our time's almost gone. And you know, we stressed a minute ago the fact that God's interested in us as human beings and God desires all men to be saved, come to the knowledge of the truth. And the beauty of Scripture is God has clearly, concisely articulated His will for us. And so let's just say somebody's watching tonight and they're not a Christian. And they want to obey the will of God. They want to obey the Father. And you remember Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. So what would the Father's will be? Well, I think there's only one place to find the Father's will, and I guess that would be in His last will and testament, His New Testament um, that we can study from. As you look through the New Testament, we recognize many things that, that were given. As Jesus was here upon the earth, you go back to you go back through the scriptures and what's the uh, What's the idea is he told people to repent. You can go back to Acts chapter 2 right after his death, right after his death, 
And they're told in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, they were told, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. That in the name of Jesus Christ there is literally what we're talking about when I mentioned Colossians chapter 3 verse 17. It's the same thing as when the police knock on the door and say, Open in the name of the law. So he says in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, Repent and be baptized every one of you for the remission of your sins. By what name? By what authority? Well, what gives you this? And it's by the authority of Christ. Through what Christ's design was, as Christ came to the world, we see he lives this perfect life, and we see that ultimately his blood had to be shed. He gave up his life. He was buried in the tomb, and he rose again, showing that we have opportunity to rise again. So within that, we have the opportunity to repent. Well, what do we repent of? We repent of sin. We repent of the past. We say, you know, I'm not in the sinning business, but I'm in the Christ business. And being in the Christ business obviously le leads to a different lifestyle than that of following the, or pursuing the world. So we talk about repentance. We talk about confession where, where Christ is the one that I want to serve. I don't think confession stops with the, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We see... In Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch makes that great confession. He says, says, well, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Nothing stops him then. He's able to be baptized. The reality is, though, we want to make a lifestyle where the world sees in our actions. They hear from our mouth that Jesus Christ is my Lord. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I understand that Jesus is the Messiah, God in the flesh, the one that came and lived and died, and so therefore is my hope. And understanding that we want to follow him, we're going to choose to follow that pattern. Just as he was buried in the tomb, we see that we are buried in the water. Um, mentioned on multiple occasions in the New Testament. But the idea is, according to Romans chapter 6, that they were buried in Christ and they rose to walk in newness of life. We talk about that repentance. Well, that newness of life is shown or evidenced after the baptism. They continue to walk in this new lifestyle. It's not a, a once saved, well, I'm always taken care of. I was baptized, so therefore I don't have to do anything else. The idea is, look, I chose to make a change. I chose to be a follower of a Christ, so now I live a new way. And the reality is that's what we want you to do. We want you to be a follower of Christ. We want you to be a changed person. You talk about faithfulness. The reality is when you chose to become a follower of a Christ, you chose to make a life change. And it's a commitment for the future, not just for now, but it's a commitment to I'm giving my life to Christ and that's who I will live for. That's right. That's right. So we want to encourage you tonight, if you want to respond to the invitation in any way, and by that I simply mean if you haven't been baptized into Christ, you want to be baptized tonight, we're at the building, we can accommodate you. If you can't drive up here, we can come get you. That's right. I'm we a little dangerous, but I'll get you here and back. I guarantee it. Absolutely. We're going to have a song now, and then we'll come back and wrap things up. Remember when, remember when they went to Sonic Hill? <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't talk about that. <laughs> you were... You were we're going down Goodland. Oh man, I do. I remember seeing the Keon. Uh, yeah, hundred. <laughs>
attendance, and we got some folks that have not been able to get out for a while. We hope to see them back on Sunday morning. And listen, if you haven't been coming on Sunday night, we'd love to have you. Uh, we want to do everything that we can to be strong and faithful to God and to be a light in this community. Jared, as always, so good to be with you, and we're grateful for the opportunity to work together to be a part of the worship tonight. And so I'm going to turn it over to you and let you close it out. Well, I don't have nothing important to say, but uh, we sure do appreciate y'all. And uh, as Mike mentioned, I need your encouragement. So if you were able to uh, come to services, please come encourage me. I get down when you're not here, and I would greatly appreciate you being here and uh, the encouragement that you give um, to me as well as others. So we look forward to seeing you. We also got Tuesday morning class. If you... Um, would like to come spend some time with us. We'll be in the back at 10 o'clock on Tuesdays as well as all our regular services. So we miss you. Lord willing, we'll see you again soon. And uh, our phones are open. If you need some fellowship for tonight, just call Mike or I. We'd be glad to talk to you because we don't get enough fellowship when we're not together. That's I right. know we miss out. So That's we right. sure love you. We appreciate you. Look forward to seeing you. And we're going to go ahead and close out. And we'll let... We'll let Mike dismiss us in a prayer. All right. Our Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time that we've had together. We're so grateful to be a part of the church. We're humbled by your great love and mercy and grace. And we thank you for your redemptive plan. And Father, we pray that we would live in such a way so that we might bring you honor and glory. We ask that you bless those who are sick, those who need our prayers regularly. We pray for our elders, bless and be with them, bless our deacons. We pray for every member. Help us to be everything that you want us to be. Help us to be salt and light in this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.